Hello, and welcome to the Travel and Transformation Show with me, your host, Sophia, and my guest today, Sarah Marie Page. Now, Sarah is a book junkie. She's a young adult fantasy writer, and she's a trust and estate attorney. So I want to hear that story, how all of that um, meshes together. So welcome to the show, Sarah. I'm glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Sophia. I'm so excited to be here. So, okay. I really want to hear your story. So how, you know, how does all that go together that, you know, this estate attorney and then, oh, I'm writing fantasy fiction for young adults and I'm a book junkie. (laughs) How does that all mesh? Because I know that I have a ton of different passions, hence the name of my podcast. And there's stuff even within that that I'm passionate about. So tell us your story. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a funny story. I grew up writing. I wrote um, when I was little, sitting on my dad's lap. He would type on Microsoft Word and illustrate the books with clip art. And I wrote all through high school. Um took a break through college, took a break through law school. And one thing that you guys need to know about law school, if you haven't been, is that it is incredibly cutthroat. And so everybody is rated on a curve is what they call it. They only give out so many A's, so many B's, so many C's, and they usually curve it around a B minus. So you're competing with your classmates to get these few top spots and the few top spots really dictate where you can go when you graduate from law school, especially if you want to go to one of the big fancy law firms. And so I figured out the law school game and did really well in law school. I graduated <laughs> in the top 20% of my class Yay. and landed a dream job at one of these big fancy law firms. And so I was so excited to, you know, get the fancy job and to do really well in law school. Like life is going really, really good. And I remember I was about a year into my practice and the mentor who took me into the law firm and and was a hiring guy, he's the one that that hired me and brought me in. He said, Sarah, I really worry that you're not getting the mentorship that you need. Let's go to lunch and talk. And I was like, okay. So he took me to the little restaurant, which is the restaurant that we went to when he first met with me and we talked about um, the job and and coming on as an associate. So we went back to this restaurant and I ordered what I always order. And we sat at almost the same table. And he was like, Sarah, I just wanted to let you know that we have two interns. And I knew this, two interns who are working at the, the law office. And when they graduate law school, the firm is going to offer them positions to be associates, just like you. And he's like, and I just wanted to let you know that when they graduate law school, they're going to take all the work and you're going to be pushed out um, because the partners are only going to give work to the good people and they're better than you. And they're in law school. Real words. Like I, those words are like seared into my brain at this point. It was in 2019, right before the pandemic. So quite some time ago, but seared into my brain and he says Sarah you're not good at legal writing you're not good at legal research frankly you're only good at filling out forms and the form comment came because I had revolutionized I, I built a big form bank for the firm during my first year about 
trust administration and estate planning and stuff like that. So that's where the form comment came from. Um, so he said, you know, you need to start basically building up your book of business. And I, I think he was trying to show me the writing on the wall and to say, you know, this is, this is what's coming. You need to be prepared. But the way that that feedback was delivered was incredibly gutting. And I remember sitting and staring at the salad that I always ordered and just picking at it and, and, and trying not to cry. And then afterwards he's like, and I have a console that you can come sit on, on if you want. And I just like disappeared from the office for the rest of the afternoon. I just could not be there anymore. And I called my husband. I, I went to the park across the street and called my husband almost in tears. And I was like, I think I need to find another job. And he was like, okay, just get through the day and then come home and we'll talk about it. That really launched kind of a dark period for me because I was used to being the top and used to being one of the best and used to doing like really, really well. And to hear that was so, so gutting. And so I told my husband during that time, if I just break down crying in the middle of the day, it's because I'm thinking about my job and I'm thinking about my work. And during that time, I had been creative writing a little bit throughout the first year when I when I came back and started practicing law. But this idea for another story started percolating. And I wanted to write a story about a nobody who became a somebody because at that time, I felt like such a nobody. Mm-hmm. And I desperately, desperately wanted to be a somebody. And so I wrote the first draft of this book or, or most of the first draft of this book in kind of like this fever dream of like after this, like, you know, this, this fever dream of like depression and um, like in, imposter syndrome and inferiority. And even now, sometimes I look back at what I wrote back then, some of that survived into the into the final draft. And I'm like, I was not okay. I was not, I was not doing okay. I will say the things that helped were for um so firstly backing up for a long time I didn't talk to anybody about it I was so ashamed to get this feedback and I thought that the feedback was a reflection on me as a person and not a reflection on what I was doing and so I sat on it and I I hid it and didn't talk to anybody about it um until it got to this boiling point where I could not hide it and sit on it anymore. And so there was this one other attorney at the firm who was also kind of a mentor to me, different from the attorney that gave the feedback. I was like, I have to talk to somebody about it. So I scheduled an appointment on his calendar so that I wouldn't check it out. And I just called it something vague, like Sarah, meet with Sarah to discuss things, right? Okay, so, so before yeah. before you go on, can I just ask a question? Yeah. So in this law firm, did they have a lot of women in the law firm or like, was it mostly men or was there a good mix? Because I just have something percolating in my head that I kind of want to ask, but I I need that answer first. (laughs) No, it was, so all of the leadership positions were men and I was one of the only associates that, I was one of the first associates that they had brought on. Um, They had one other litigation associate who was a female at that time. And then they brought one in they were in the process of bringing in one a couple months 
before or after that feedback was given. The timeline for her starting is a little bit hazy since it's not my timeline. But yeah, probably two female, three female associates and a bunch of male partners. So ask your question. (laughs) Well, and I, and that is kind of what I was thinking, right? Because to deliver that type of feedback in that kind of way, just sort of says to me that you're not, you're not really used to dealing with females, number one. And that's, and I don't know the tone or anything else, but I'm sure there was probably a better way to do it, but working in a male environment and then getting that type of feedback from a man, knowing that you might be pushed out for another man, how did that make you feel? It was was really stressful. And I will say that it is still very much a male-dominated field. There are more female attorneys now. Um, and the firm has really worked to bring in more diversity since that time. This was, again, back in 2019. And so they've had several hires since then. But yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly stressful. Um, I will say that practicing law and practicing at this firm has made me embrace more traditionally masculine um qualities for example women tend to be in my experience a little bit humbler about their achievements right we don't like to brag um or toot our own horn and practicing law has taught me you have to toot your own horn you nobody else is going to toot your horn for you and so you know i am really good at saying hey guys this is this accomplishment that i did or this is what i'm doing do you want to celebrate with me um Yeah, so it's interesting being a female, especially one of the first female associates that this firm had brought on. Like I said, they had one other one in a traditionally male-dominated industry. And so, well, and then just judging from your statements, you are still there. Yeah, actually I did. And I survived. So this is kind of jumping to the end of the story, but- Well, no, I I want you to go back in. I just wanted, I just- it was so right on the tip of my tongue there that I had to get it out because I just had this feeling that, yeah, this, it was coming from a guy, but it sounds like a male dominated area. And a lot of women who work in male dominated fields, I mean, there's a lot of things that they end up having to put up with that if they were a man, they wouldn't necessarily have to deal with. So carry on. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And, and, one second before or one one comment before I dive back in is it's interesting specifically being a young woman especially in a traditionally male dominated industry getting mistaken for a legal assistant and this happened a lot more when I was newer I would walk in behind these partners um mm-hmm. who were silver-haired and had been practicing for a really long time and I was there as an associate attorney to learn and practice and I was going to be helping out on the case and so they would want me to sit in on the consults and sometimes people would just assume that I was there as a legal assistant to take notes and I'm like yes I am there to take notes but I'm taking notes as an attorney not a legal assistant um so yeah and and watching the male associates that they've hired many of them didn't have that problem where they would walk in and people would be like oh this is your associate not your legal assistant I do think one of them was accidentally called a legal assistant once and it was my like it made me secretly really happy the short <laughs> what is it short 
Brad, the the part of you that likes to see other people's pain, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you got called a legal assistant secretly. Um, a little bit. Okay, so diving back into the story, make an appointment with this attorney um, who was a mentor to me. And I put it on his calendar so I don't chicken out, call it something super vague. Sarah, talk with Sarah about things, go into his office, and I start explaining what happened. And, you know, I I start crying and he's like, let's go, let's go on a walk. Like we live, our office is a fishbowl. Anybody can see it, come in and see like, let's go on a walk. So we went on a walk and talked. And then I also went and talked to my boss about it or the attorney who was directly my supervisor and just said, you know, like, Hey, I'm really worried about when these two associates come on about me being squeezed out. I've gotten this feedback. And I just remember he was like, no, Sarah, that's not, we're not here to like shove you out like that. That feedback is not true necessarily that they're that they're going to shove you out. We have a we need you and we have a duty uh, to keep you busy because you were here first. And that that really helped um, to calm the little patter patter of my heart. I will say that. So I wrote this book and the book took a couple of years to write. And then I started querying it last year. Querying is the process of submitting it to agents for them to, they'll take it and then submit it to a publishing house. So think about it as a real estate agent. You need a real estate agent to help you sell your house. You you use a literary agent to sell your book. So submitting it to agents and getting these rejections from these agents. And I was like, it is so ironic that the book that I wrote all about rejection and dealing with rejection and and being good enough and imposter syndrome keeps getting rejected. (laughs) And it started to bring back these feelings of rejection. About the same time, I had a friend who was a really close friend. Her name is also Sarah. And so it's always a little bit confusing when I tell the story because it's like Sarah and Sarah, one of my best friends is also named Sarah. But the friend Sarah was um, housing teens in, in an addiction recovery program. So uh, if they had like sex addiction, drug addiction, self-harm, they would go to school during the day at the special school and then she would house them during the evenings. I was at her house one of the evenings where she had these kids and one of them really wanted to be an author too and have her own bookstore. And so I was talking to her and I was like, Sarah was like, my friend Sarah was like, did you know that Sarah, me, is a writer? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not like, like hemming and hawing. And the girl just was like, she was like, Sarah, you are like the coolest person ever. And just like totally like loving my ego. So I printed out one copy of the book that I wrote, my rejection book, and sent it to her. I live out of state from Sarah. And so I wasn't there when Sarah gave this girl the book, the single copy that I printed. Mm -hmm. But I did see a video. And it is the most heartwarming video that I have ever seen so she gets it and it's this girl that came from a really rough background she didn't have a good support system growing up wasn't used to getting gifts from people and especially not gifts out of the blue right um so she looks at this book and then she cries a little bit and then she puts it on top of her head to like kind of like hide herself a little bit and she spent the rest of the day just like binging it so that these kids can read on the weekends um and so she she just binged 
the entire thing. And seeing the difference that it can make for one person is the reason that I continue to do this and that I continue to write and get rejected because it's hard. It's, it's still hard getting rejected. Um, even though I have had a lot of rejection in writing, um, everyone still stings a little bit, but so how do you, I'm sorry, how do you actually deal with the rejection and how do you overcome it to keep going? Yeah. So dealing with it is sometimes it's okay to be sad and to take a little break. So if I get a particularly tough rejection and there have been some that have hurt worse than others, because I was hopeful for whatever reason for this particular agent, I will, you know, take a break from writing for a day and just be sad and feel the feelings because trying to ignore or push away the feelings doesn't make the feelings go away. It just buries them deeper and um, it's better to just feel them and release them and let them go. So I let myself feel the feelings and be sad. I also have a really good support group of friends who are in the same um, boat as me. So they are writing their books and querying their books. And some of them have agents and their agent is submitting the book to publishing houses and you still get rejection at that stage too. And they know what it's like. And so we can all commiserate together and then cheer each other on and say, you know, you're a good writer, you know, you're a good writer and your stories will find a home eventually. The other thing that helps is thinking about the impact that my writing has had on people. So thinking back to that girl who I gave the book to and she put it on top of her face and then binged it and thinking about people. So I also write some flash fiction um, short stories Mm -hmm. and I have a couple that people have said like you know they're short they're usually a thousand words so tiny um, tiny stories but people read it and say I felt something and that story helped me feel less alone or and that's the biggest compliment to me is when someone says I felt something in your writing like it, it stirred something within me it made me feel less alone and so yeah, I, the people, that's how it ultimately comes down to why I keep going. So the friends who cheer me on and also the, the people and the fans and the audience that is there to cheer me on as well. And yeah. So you mentioned your husband. So is he on board with your writing as well? So is he one of your cheerleaders? Oh, absolutely. He's very, very supportive of it. I will say he doesn't like to read the stuff until it's done. He'll read it when it's finished and when it's published. I think I accidentally wore him out. So in my final year of law school, I entered this this contest and I became hyper fixated on this essay that I was entering with and I had him read it so many times I was like I switched a word in paragraph three can you please reread it and make sure it works and so now he's like I will not read it until it is done in its final form if the book has a barcode on it and I can buy it then I will read it I did actually win the essay contest though so my neurotic editing of that essay did uh did pay off so That's interesting because 
I think, especially people who've done a lot of school, <laughs> and I'm a person who's done a lot of school, um, you end up so fixated on the perfection of things that it kind of carries over into other parts of your life. So right now I have to claim myself as a recovering perfectionist because it spills over into so many different parts of your life, you know, and, and then not even realizing that that's kind of a part of good girl syndrome and having to really dismantle that piece of it because perfectionism, which there is no such thing as perfectionism, but it it just sort of rolls into a kind of neurosis. <laughs> it's like, like you said, it's like, I'm totally fixated on this thing and I can't turn it in until it's perfect. And, and, but when does perfection come, right? How many times do you have to actually change something to decide that it's perfect? So I think, you know, that that's, that's an interesting part of the whole journey is kind of trying to let go of the perfectionism so that you can actually do what needs to be done. Because I think sometimes that leads to a little bit of procrastination or like hyper focus and everything else falls to the wayside because you're just in that one spot. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I love the idea of calling yourself a recovering perfectionist. I think I'm going to steal that and use that (laughs) going forward. You also mentioned perfectionism as being a good girl, like a a myth of being a good girl. That reminded me, there's a book called Breaking the Good Girl Myth, and she walks through the different good girl myths and symptoms, like the myth of harmony, the myth of um, perfectionism, the myth of logic. So like reasoning your way instead of following your intuition. I've read it twice. It's an excellent, excellent book. But with writing especially, there is no such thing as perfect, right? Because it's so subjective (laughs) and everybody's tastes are going to differ. And you start to see this too as you get your book to a place where the feedback is more subjective. You know, I would have liked this. And then somebody says, I would have liked this more. Like, for example, in my book that... I wrote the one about dealing with imposter syndrome. One of my friends was like, I didn't like how she spent so much time running around the beach in the sweater. You spent way too much time talking about her sweaters. I just wanted to get on with it. And then I had another friend who was like, loved all the descriptions of the sweaters. It made it so cozy. And I just loved that so much. And I was like, oh my gosh, but like literally (laughs) out of all the things, like, did I really talk about the sweater that much? is the first question. The second question <laughs> is, you know, the one friend hated it. And then the other friend was like, do not touch any of the sweater descriptions. So um, yeah, there's no such thing as perfectionism in art. And I think if you, and writing specifically has taught me that it's okay to just let go. And oftentimes my best work comes from when I'm just playing with myself. So when I let go of this, like, oh, it has to be perfect and the end result. And I just sit down and have fun because I think that when you're creating something, whether or not you're an artist or a writer or a musician, the energy that you have when you are creating it, 
that bleeds through into the final product. And so yes. if you're having fun making it, then that shows and people will have fun consuming it. But if you're so neurotic about, oh, it has to be perfect the first time and I can't move forward, then that's also going to show as well. Yeah. So I completely agree because every art form, sometimes you can actually look at the art and know what the artist was feeling in that moment. Or you can read a book and feel it. But then sometimes I think, okay, once you have an editor and things get edited and it may not always end up being what you thought it was going to be as the artist, but it ends up being something that has your essence in it. Or even if you look at cooking, you hear people say, oh, you have to cook with love, but you really do have to cook with love because- I know that I can make the same meal twice. And if I make it when I'm in a totally great mood, the food tastes completely different than if I just make it because, oh God, I got to eat, you know? (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. It's so different. So there's a couple other things that um, I'd like to ask you about. So because this is a travel show, I know you have a cool travel story, so, but I don't know what the story is. It's going to be a surprise for me. So can you tell us what that story is? (laughs) Yes. So when I was in my second year of law school, I did an internship in New Zealand. Okay. Broke college students, spent all of my money trying to get to New Zealand and we had a stopover in Hawaii. Okay. So all the money went to that. We're out of money. And my husband was doing a master's degree in psychology and had a research conference in Lithuania. And so he came like the the travel, the research conference got paid for some of his ticket and he paid, he came through that. All that to say, we have a crap ton of bags. Okay. So we are getting ready to leave the country and I have my checked bag that's stuffed full of stuff. He has like a duffel bag that's stuffed full of stuff. And we go to weigh them and, or we go to check in and they're like, you only have one check bag and it's going to be $250 to check a bag at the airport. We're broke college students. All the money went for the plane tickets already. We don't have $250 to check a bag. So we take his duffel bag and we rearrange everything so that we condense it down to one bag. But what that means is that our carry-ons are now packed. Okay. So we are walking towards security and we start to see these signs that say please make sure that your carry-on is less than I want to say it's like 24 kilograms but this was many years ago so it might be different anyways please make sure your uh carry-ons are less than a certain amount and I'm like nobody actually weighs the carry-ons do they and sure enough there's a lady sitting there and she's weighing each of the carry-ons so oh my god places <laughs> ours on and they're like double the weight that they are supposed to be. And she's like, I'm sorry, I can't let you on. You're either going to have to get rid of stuff or check a bag. Checking a bag is out of the question because we just don't have the money to do that. And so we're walking back, doing our walk of shame back to the baggage check area. And I look at Brandon and I'm like, we're going to have to put on all of our clothes. And so And he's like, all of my clothes were in the checked one. And I remember like he opened up his bag and saw like all of his underwear and his face just falls. (laughs) Um, So anyways, we go into the bathroom and I put on like 
you know, seven or eight pairs of socks. We're stopping in Hawaii for a few days. So I'm wearing like three swimsuits, two pairs of leggings, like four or five shirts, and then a sweatshirt. And I'm like sweating. I can't even do up my shoes because I'm wearing so many socks. And <laughs> I like, so, so we go out and we wear bags again and they're still over. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do? And we're like, we have pockets. So we take out everything else and we shove it into our pockets. Okay. And then we weigh them again. And I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do if it's still over because one, this bag is practically empty. And two, I have my blow dryer. So I guess I could wrap that around my neck and wear it like a scarf. So <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> So we weigh them again and they're, they're good. Like they're under the weight. And by this point, like literally it's empty. It's a bag and a blow dryer and a laptop. That's what I can take. So we're walking through security. The lady weighs our bags and she's like, yep, you're good. And our faces are feet red and we're sweating. And we're like, yes, we made it. And then we start seeing signs that are like, make sure to remove all of your outer layers to go through the body scans. And I was like, great, now it's going to be a strip show in the Auckland airport. And that's the story. <laughs> so I can't be the story. So did you have to take off everything and go through? <laughs> I took off like the coat and I was like, I'm just going to like see if I can slide through here wearing, because I, I layered it too. So I, I put on like a pair of like really baggy sweatpants as the outer layer and a baggy sweatshirt as the outer layer so I didn't look cute and I looked about like 15 pounds or 20 pounds heavier than I actually was because of all the clothes uh -huh. but I was like well, maybe I can like sneak through this and so yeah we did make it through I, I took off the coat and then once we got through the edge or we got through security again we went straight to the bathrooms and took everything off and put it back, back in our bags. <laughs> and on that flight, I will tell you, we had our pick of overhead bin space. When people fly from Auckland, they don't really travel with, or at least in 2016 when this happened, they don't really travel with carry-on stuff. And so, yeah, we, we could put anything up there that we wanted. There was plenty of space because nobody had carry-ons. Also, pro tip, if anybody goes to Auckland, plan to check all of your baggage on the way home. Oh, why? Oh, because because <laughs> because the carry-on limits are so low. Like, okay. don't plan on taking just a carry-on because you probably won't get it through, or at least do the research to see if that's still an issue. Oh, okay. And that makes sense because I know, because um, I've actually been to Auckland and, but I had, well, I had check luggage and carry-on, so it, it kind of worked out. Uh, but I also know that different airlines have different rules. Hmm. So you could fly on one airline and they're really lenient with stuff and you fly on another airline and they're completely strict with stuff. So totally get that because I know I've been in the airport having to rearrange baggage because you're like, oh, this bag's too heavy. And it's like, I can't take anything else out. <laughs> and so, but the lady who, the lady who was um, standing there with me, who worked for the airline, she's like, do you have any jeans in there? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you know what? Jeans are really heavy. You wouldn't think about it, 
but take out the jeans and see if that makes a difference. Because the airline I was flying, if you're even like ounces over up to a pound over, they will charge you the next, um, the next highest fee. So I had jeans in there. I took the jeans out and it worked, but I'm like, how am I going to stuff these jeans? (laughs) But yeah, it's just, you learn to, um, once you travel quite a bit, you learn to be creative about the way you pack so that (laughs) you can get things the way they need to be so that you can move, move through life. Cause I think one of the things I hate the most is when I get through, um, like you're going through TSA and then they're like, oh, we're going to divert your bags because we have to check like one thing because it showed up and then they unpack your bag and they're like, oh, no. I was like, let me, can I just pack my bag? No, no, no. We have to do it. And it's like, dude, you're not going to be able to pack my bag back the way I had it. They're like, I have two centimeters of space around this thing. And if it doesn't go in in the correct order, it's not going in. Exactly. (laughs) It is a thing, people. It's a thing. So before we go, I have to tap your brain as an attorney. So a lot of women don't really know anything about estate planning or trust planning. So what advice or tips would you give to women about those things? Yeah. So the first thing to know is that you're not too young to estate plan. A lot of people assume I'm not 85, so I don't need an estate plan. An estate plan as well, for one, we don't know if something's going to happen to you. But for two, it's also not just for if you die, it's also for if you become incapacitated. So it's really important to have those documents in place if something is going to happen to you. Because if you're young, um, you're, you know, in your 40s, less likely that you're going to die, more likely that you're incapacitated somehow. And so it's important to have those documents in place. Second thing is to meet with an estate planning attorney to do those documents and to do that planning. And specifically, someone who practices in estate planning. So I do the planning. I also do the admin. So I'll administer estates when people die. And I can tell you really fast if documents were drafted by a doc prepper or someone who does not do estate planning, because there are tons of nuances that a lot of times these people are not aware of. And it's really easy. Estate planning is one of those areas that a lot of people think that they can do. And so you have a lot of dabblers in it. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit low stakes dabbling because they're not going to find out that the documents suck until after you're dead, right? <laughs> it's not it's like at that point they've court. already gotten paid, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've gotten paid and they're gone. So I've seen and I've cleaned up a ton of things where the attorney didn't know what they were doing. Go to a, an attorney that specifically does estate planning. That's the moral of that story. Um, so don't go to someone who's just like, you know, I'm a personal injury attorney, but I also will kind of do estate planning on the side. No, go to someone who does estate planning. And then the third thing is to don't DIY your estate planning, because that's another area where we do a lot of cleanup for people who, um, 
you know, we're, we're trying to cut corners and to do it themselves. It's one of those things where you really do get what you pay for. And it's a lot more expensive to fix than it is to do right the first time. So, I mean, I, and I have to bring this up because attorneys are not cheap, <laughs> right? So if you're in a space at the moment where you can't really afford to pay somebody in 15 minute increments, knowing that it could take like several hours to do something, what's your alternative? I mean, because you're saying don't go to somebody who doesn't know estate planning and don't do it yourself. But if you really can't afford the fee, then what is the alternative? Yeah, so some states and some bar organizations will do low bono work and will do low bono events. So specifically in Phoenix, which is where I am licensed, I can't speak to other states, but every just no every October they'll do something called Night of the Living Will, where they have a bunch of estate planning attorneys who will just volunteer their time to help people get the healthcare directives and um, the living will, which is the end of life directive. And I think they also do the last will and testament. And so depending on your state, there may be some opportunities for low bono uh, or pro bono work available to you. So that would be something that you could contact the state bar association um, to look into. The other thing is sometimes there will be healthcare directives available for the county court on their on their website. So in Maricopa County, if you type in Maricopa County durable power of attorney, they mm -hmm. do have a durable power of attorney that is available. And so again, those are the those are the directives that will help if you become incapacitated, the durable power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney. Having something in place is better than having nothing in place. So some planning is always better than no planning. Um, so th those are the two things that I would look into. Sometimes they'll do them through, and this is, it's been a long time since I've been in law school and since I've done any of the law school, like legal clinics, but there are legal clinics for low bono, pro bono services that sometimes law schools will put on too. So those are the three places that I would check and it's just going to vary depending on your state. Okay. And I think the thing too is I, when you hear estate planning, it almost sounds like you have to have like a bunch of stuff, you know, cause it's an estate, <laughs> but can you just explain it a little more so that anybody who has that kind of thought in their head knows exactly what you mean when you say, you know, estate planning? Yeah. So <laughs> it all... sounds huge. <laughs> That's true. So the word estate planning, I, I believe that comes from like old English law where they had like your estate, but everybody has an estate, right? Even if you live in an apartment that you rent and you have your bank account and your car, you still have an estate. Mm -hmm. right? You just have a smaller estate. Um, some people have smaller estates. Some people have bigger estates. Estate is just the stuff that you have. And that's that's literally all it is. It's just your stuff, right? It's, <laughs> it's a legal word for that. We like to make, attorneys really like to make um, everyday words or take like normal words and make them like legal easy to make them sound more official. My favorite one, if you're curious, is 
the term issue. So issue means kids or descendants. But instead of saying kids or descendants, they'll oftentimes say, you know, if so-and-so is deceased, then to their issue. And I always have to explain to clients, no, we're not saying that they have issues like issues <laughs> with their kids so, or to their posterity, right? So we like to we like to make weird words, um, take take obscure words and use them. Well, I think that's because if you make the wor- make it sound more complicated, you can charge more for it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I okay. Obviously, that's just my take. It's not a dig on attorneys anywhere. So please just take it lightly. But you know, no, I just think it's really expensive. I I totally understand that. So I would just like to thank you for being on here. Um, I appreciate I appreciate these tips and everything about your book. So you're going to have to let us know um, when your book comes out and where to find the book. But in the meantime, if people want to find you, where would they find you? Oh, absolutely. So the best place to keep in contact with me is through my email newsletter. So my newsletter friends get first news on anything that happens and they also get exclusive short stories. So the way that you can sign up for that is if you go to serpentgreen.com and you can serpent sign up like the snake, like the snake. Yeah. Serpent like green. The color. <laughs> yeah. Serpentgreen.com. The reason is there's another project that I'm working on, not the not the one that we talked about today but there's another one called serpent green so serpentgreen.com is and you guys can sign up for that you can also find me on instagram at sarah page stories and that's page like a piece of paper um so sarah page stories on instagram and i do reels and little send updates there but really the best place to keep in contact is the newsletter okay great Okay, so thank you again for being here. And yeah, definitely let me know uh, when your next project comes out so we can talk about that. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, bye.